Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning-fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join HealthBird community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited today about the guests that we have. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, exiting. You know, he has an exit under his belt, and, you know, what he's doing right now is pretty remarkable. You know, we're going to be talking about all types of good stuff, you know, recruiting, pivoting, uh, how he was able to get like senior people to help and, you know, push things forward, getting started with the first sales. I mean, some of the good stuff that you are all probably dealing at this same point. So super inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sev Ayan. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So originally, I mean, you were born in Costa Rica, but you moved, uh, you know, a bit. So give us a walk through memory lane, Seb. How was life growing up? <laughs> yes, I was born in Costa Rica, and then my parents um, uh, moved back to the United States, and I grew up in in a loft in Soho uh, in New York City, uh, which at the time was not as fancy as Soho is now. So it was, uh, my parents were both artists and uh, grew up uh, with a lot of dust, ceramics dust and wood dust everywhere. Now, in your case, you know, I'm sure that that creativity that you grew up, you know, around was quite um, useful, no? Because, I mean, obviously, you're, you're I, I would say, with the vision and with what you're up to now and your entrepreneurial journey, I'm sure that they, all that helped you quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, um, 
am inspired, especially by my mom, who is uh, an entrepreneur herself. She founded a ceramics empire, uh, one of the most successful commercial ceramicists of all time, uh, Barbara Eigen. Um, but um, for sure, my parents, I think I would say they actively discouraged art because uh, I think at the time when I was growing up, it wasn't super lucrative for them as a living, as a way of earning a living and actively encouraged uh, academic pursuits like math and uh, law and, you know, all the things that like that. So um, I probably have a good, a good healthy dose of creativity in me as well as uh, a penchant and a, a drive to succeed in terms of just academic success. So in your case, you went to Cornell and you studied statistics, a computer science, you know, you, you, you did quite a, a bit of stuff. But one thing that is very interesting is you then went to law school. Why? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. I ask myself that sometimes. I ask myself that sometimes. Why? Um, you know, I I wasn't super. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the the probably the best answer to that was. Um, it seemed like a smart thing to do at the time. I had you know good grades and a good LSAT score, and I was uh, encouraged by a professor and friend at the time when I was an undergrad student uh, to do that. Um, so, and, and frankly, it was something that was easy because I got into Cornell and I was already living in Ithaca. So I, you know, I just, I didn't even, I don't think I, I even had to move my stuff. Like, I think I was, I just stayed in the apartment I was staying in, uh, all bad reasons to invest a lot of money in law school, but I don't know. I thought practicing law was cool. I definitely knew a lot about labor and employment laws in undergrad because I went to Cornell's industrial labor relations school. Um, and I, 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 I was always attracted to understanding work. And this is true uh, today with what I do at Cindy. Forever, I think work is such an interesting thing because it's so per deeply personal for people who work. Anyone who's worked, anyone who's listening to this podcast, anyone who's ever worked in their life, it's simultaneously an economic exchange as well as a deeply personal thing. Think about it, Alejandro. How, how else does, do you understand how much you're worth for your time? Time is the only thing you can't replace. Well, unless you're like Jeff Bezos and you have some kind of crazy time machine or, you know, you can go back in time. I don't know anyone else who can do that. So you have a limited amount of time and your employer is basically telling you, okay, here's how much you're worth. I'm going to pay you this amount of dollars or euros uh, for your time. It's simultaneously a very personal way of understanding your value and of your contributions to society as a human being. But it's also like a very raw economic exchange that people think has no emotions to it. So it has this weird juxtaposition. And historically, that, fa that fascinated me, that juxta juxtaposition of how employers manage that process and understand work as an economic exchange, while the people who are working, all of us humans, I've worked all my whole life, um, you know, how we perceive and experience work as such a personal thing. And I think that's a fast, if you really unpack that, there's so much there to think about that juxtaposition and how it has impacted millions and millions of people uh, globally over centuries, you know? And, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable, again, as part of those shifts that, uh, that you've had in, in your career that are like really aggressive shifts because, I mean, what you did is you went into law school uh, then you become a lawyer and, you know, you did, the, you practice labor and employment, you know, at a firm. And then you, you did 20th Century Fox where you were, you know, uh, leading, you know, one of the departments there. But, but all of a sudden a PhD at MIT is just like so, so like out of, out of left field. So, so what happened there? Um, I, I wanted to be an academic and um, the, the route to becoming an academic was to get a PhD 
And the same thing, like I was encouraged by academic friends who said, oh, you should really do this. You're, you're a good writer. You, you, you know, you have this, you know, really good ability to understand the world and interpret things and, and write and you would love it. And here's why it's so great. So they kind of encouraged me and I said, oh, this sounds like a good gig. Um, I think I would enjoy doing it. So the original kind of goal um, was to get a PhD and then become a full-time academic, um, which is, which is what I did. And in your case, you know, you became a full-time academic, you were at Northwestern. And then after that, you got uh, back into the, you know, employment, you know, and the professional side of things, uh, more at at a company-wise level. So I guess in your case, you know, that was kind of like the immediate step that needed to happen for you to become a founder. So walk us through, you know, the sequences of events there. You know, I, I was, I, I found being an academic, uh, very unsatisfying in in the sense that, um, you spend a lot of time admiring problems, but not fixing them. So, um, a lot of my work as like, as an academic focused on identifying big problems. So I found some problems in how people perceive form contracts, a trillion dollar industry of e-commerce, um, problems there. And I was like, okay, let's find, let's do some experiments and figure out how to fix it. I wrote proposals for research grants to the National Science Foundation for how to fix problems with, with, with regard to polarization. I said, oh, people are starting to be very polarized. This is back when Obama was president. Um, I said, oh, but I think polarization is an issue, and I see this as a problem. Let me build an app to try to fix that. And that proposal was rejected, uh, which is one of the reasons why I was like, I, there were a lot of things in academia where I was like, oh, okay, wait a minute. This is not a good place to actually build things to help people. This is a good place for people to admire problems and talk about problems, but not actually fix things and get stuff done. So it really was that experience that really motivated me to move back or move into the entrepreneurial space because that that's it's the polar opposite. Like all my friends in on the other side of of life were building things and fixing things. And I remember I went to a, a private a uh, session that a friend of mine at Google invited me to where they had leaders, thought leaders from different industries like insurance and medical science and all these data science folks. Uh, and I came as a representative from labor and employment as an academic. And I was blown away by how far, much far in advance the people in the private sector were from academia in terms of data science and applications and building things to fix problems. So I was like, okay, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta get, I gotta get over to that side of the fence. Um, and I'm, I'm motivated to build things to fix problems. Like if someone shows me a problem and it's a, a social problem or an issue that affects people, I'm, I'm drawn to it and I want to find a tech, a creative technology solution to fix those problems. That was true with cherry tree data science, which tried to address the problem of people not getting work because they've had criminal records. That's the idea behind cherry tree and Cindio, the company I founded in 2016, same idea with what we're doing now with, with what we call PayEQ, our product called PayEQ and our workplace equity platform. There is a, a technology gap there um, where people are not getting treated fairly, consistently, objectively uh, because of their race, because of their gender. Uh, and that's a solvable problem with technology, math. And it's when I see those things lacking, I'm drawn to them and I want to fix them. I want to build something to fix it and then deploy it. So that's sort of my goal and my whole kind of motivation of even going from academia to entrepreneurship. So with Cherry Tree, basically you guys say bootstrap for the most part of the company, and then you raise some money from angel investors. And, and then eventually you, you did an exit with this, like quite a strategic exit. So, so tell us about this. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a small exit. Um, it was modest. The The technology is very cool. It was a little ahead of its time, right? So this was, um, I think now there's more of an appetite and understanding that people with criminal records People with criminal records are not necessarily bad people or criminals. Um, you know, there's there's literally hundreds of thousands of people, especially in the United States, with criminal records for things that if you looked at the record and saw what they did, you'd be like, oh, my God, like I've done those things like marijuana possessions. A great example, like there, there are people who have served years for possessing small amounts of drugs like that that are now even legal, like in, in many states and many jurisdictions. So, you know. Just because someone, quote unquote, has a criminal record doesn't mean that they're uh, a criminal or a bad person or even someone you would not let watch your kids or something like that. So it was a, a crazy thing to me that these people were not able to get jobs um, because of those things. Um, and we're talking about, by the way, we're talking about jobs like mostly call centers and fast food. Um, and the pre-existing system was very bad. It was discriminatory. It had an adverse impact on mostly uh, people of color. Um, so, um, you know, essentially we built a really cool algorithm that figured out, um, whether someone was likely to commit a crime in the next six to 12 months based on a ton of data and an instrument that we developed with a team of people. Like this was a lot of work, but it was really cool and it was very effective. And, um, yeah, we ended up just exiting in a private, uh, transaction, just the technology. And I still own some of the technology myself. So then what happened next for you? I did a lot of consulting and expert work. I work for, uh, a company called Contract Standards, uh, which is a company that uh, Kingsley Martin founded that had to do with, uh, that built, I think, the original version of contract interpretation, natural language processing, NLP, AI, that read contracts and interpreted and balanced different, different clauses. Um, and now there's 15 different versions of that kind of technology that exists in the market. Um, I did that. I learned a lot about startups um, and and. TAM and product market fit and knowing your your buyer and all those things from that experience. I did a lot of consulting and expert work with law firms, with people who are eventually going to be my buyer uh, at Syndio. And I worked as the head of uh, the global head of analytics for uh, a giant law firm too, which also was a great experience because again, I got to see what a lot of the problems were for people in total rewards and comp and ben working at organizations, large enterprise organizations. So then in your case, you know, like what needed to happen for you to get out again? Because, you know, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So how did CDO come to the picture? You know, so um, really interestingly, I was hired to do some consulting work for a large healthcare company. Um, and because I'm a data scientist and a statistician, as well as a lawyer, I'm a, you know, a good, good person to look at some things that involve technology, math, data science. And this particular application, there was a um, organizational network analysis tool that this company had, a vendor that this company had, was using, uh, and to analyze their networks and evaluate a lot of information and help them make um, decisions. And so they asked me to consult and evaluate the ONA tool. Uh, to analyze their data for a bunch of reasons. And I, I did that and I got to know the person who created that or founded that company. It's called Cindio Social. Uh, and that person name was Zach Johnson. So I met Zach and got to know him and got to know the technology very well as part of my engagement with this, this client um, and you know went on my way. Um, Zach reached out to uh, me and a friend of mine from MIT who we also knew, um, Ryan Hammond. And uh, Ryan and I, he was basically strapped for cash and wanted to get out. So uh, it presented an opportunity for Ryan and I to basically raise some money, 
negotiate with Zach for basically what we ended up buying was the technology and the IP and the name Syndio and the goodwill, the clients he actually had paying clients, paying for the ONA, including this giant healthcare company um, and a few others. So we raised some money, some angel investors. It was like two angel investors from my network and uh, someone else uh, um, who introduced me to um, a, a P, if someone who came from a private equity and was kind of on his own now. Um, and those, that was the original source of funding for the, you know, I guess, pre-seed round, if you want to call it that, um, that we raised money to basically buy out some of the technology from Syndio Social, which was the O&A tool, uh, and really create a new company. Originally, we were called Edge Analytics DBA Syndio Social because we kept the name Syndio, and now we're just uh, Syndio Solutions. So we, we evolved over time, and now I think we're just Syndio, but yeah. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And talking about evolving, whatever happened with the pivot, there was a really big pivot there. So what happened? Yeah, so we were doing, so we, we acquired that technology and we were uh, an organizational network analysis or ONA tool. An ONA basically maps networks. So it looks across all the, all the connections at a big company, like who's connected to whom in terms of different things, both in a quantitative way and a qualitative way. So quantity is just like how, how many times are, are we emailing? How many times are we on a calendar together meeting, right? And then the quality is like if you ask people, who helps you get your work done? Like name some people. So there's qualitative metrics to see how to map who's connected to who and how they're connected, what resources are being exchanged on those networks. We did all of that with this very nice technology and we were deploying and running it, but super long sales cycles. So it just took a long time. It was a nice to have, not a need to have, I think, for many organizations. And it makes a sales cycle long. The other problem, which we knew about, was the technology was beautiful, but it was sort of like a Swiss army knife. You know what this is? Swiss army knife. So it had applications, it was hard to sell. It would be like if I came to you and said, hey, I want you to buy the Swiss Army knife. You're like, what does that do? And I just opened everything and said, here you go. You'd go like, what do, I don't understand. What are, there are too many use cases, too many applications. What you have to do is productize it in a way that is more applicable to specific use cases. But we weren't there yet. And it would take a lot of eng time and dev time 
to do what our vision was, was to productize that and build it out. Meanwhile, we were having, I, I, I was seeing, you know, Ryan and I both were seeing the market evolve. And Ryan also had experience doing pay equity work as an analyst, as a consultant. And this was right about the time when states in the United States were starting to change their laws about pay equity, making them more robust. There's been federal law in the book since 1963 in the states, um, but that law was very rarely enforced because it was very, very narrow. And states were starting to put in their own laws that made pay equity more of a thing. And we saw that. And Ryan and I said, well, why don't we try to do something in this space? So literally, we sat with our two engineers at the time in Santa Cruz and whiteboarded out um, you know, what this could look like, the pay equity product could look like. And when we started to show it to experts and, and potential clients, the whiteboard and kind of really early mocks, um, we had like a really janky thing that our engineers put together with duct tape and chewing gum, like super fast, just so I could show it. Like I said, build me a workable demo that like could barely work, but I needed to show, you have to show something, right? So I showed that around to people. All the experts said, no, this will never work. Literally every single one, including friends at law firms today who work with Cindio, and some of them remember this conversation. They're like, remember I showed you this? And you were like, nope, never, never, never. Bad idea. And, you know, it's like showing someone who's an expert at sewing sneakers a, a machine that makes a Nike super fast. Like, they're, they're not going to love it, right? <laughs> like, that's sort of what was happening. Because they're like, no, Zev, you can do this because you're an expert. But software that lets people figure this out and have access these people aren't smart enough. They're not going to figure it out. They don't want to do math. They 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 couldn't see uh, the vision really. Um, but the people I showed it to, who are potential buyers, loved it because it was fast. It it did a lot of the pay equity. It, it literally the idea was to do what would normally take an analyst or an expert weeks to do in seconds. So that's really cool, and it was very powerful. Um, so I saw this big contrast. The market loved it, but the, the buyers, right, the potential buyers. But the people who would be my competition hated it. So to me, I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, this is, this is a good opportunity. So Ryan and I moved forward. We convinced the board to pivot. I mean, this is a, we're a tiny company at this point, mainly because we said, hey, look, we have long sales cycles for the ONA tool. I think we can do a small version of this pay thing and do it quickly and have fast, you know, faster sales cycle. And we'll get the revenue, have some ARR from this, and we'll start, you know, help us develop out the ONA tool more robustly and productize it, which we need to do. So it's less of a heavy lift on, on the consultative consulting side, right? Because we want to be a software company, not consultants. So that was the idea. And, and there's a relationship because you can use pay equity information to inform your network analysis, right? So we had this idea that you could use some of the pay stuff, incorporate the data into the ONA tool, and actually have a more robust product set that way. Um, and then from there, the pay equity tool started growing, growing, growing very rapidly. It really took off, and it became the primary focus of the company because it was it was our hottest thing. And it just grew and grew and grew because it really was a great idea. Um, it was way ahead of its time. There was nothing else out there even close to doing what we were doing with SaaS. There are some competitors that have come into the market since, one of whom claims that they they were... Uh, you know, ahead of us in time, which is hilarious because I've seen their founder following me around at conferences before, but that's another story. That's amazing. That, that, is, uh, that happens when you are as popular as you are, Seth, and that's a good <laughs> problem to have. And so, so now you were alluding to it earlier on the fact that you guys have raised, uh, you know, some money and, and, and obviously the, um, 
the the first tranche, as you were saying, you know, was part of that transaction that you guys ended up doing to get things going. So, how much capital have you guys raised today for the business? Uh, close to uh, over eighty million. Uh, we're through our C, C round, um, not seed C, like the letter C. Um, and uh, we're I think we're under two hundred employees, but we're approximately around that. We're global, so we have hubs in New York. We have employee hubs in New York, Seattle, I think Denver, DC. Uh, but we have employees really everywhere, and and one in Amsterdam. So we have employees now in the EU supporting this very big push for the EU uh, Pay Transparency Directive, which is another whole operation. So we have many, many global customers these days, many entities. If you go to um, sin.io or syndio.com, you'll see we've got some the list of our public companies that are out there using using that allow us to use their logos, like Salesforce and um, yeah, well, who else? Uh, I don't know. There's a whole bunch. American Airlines, a whole bunch. And we're talking about people here too. I mean, you guys have uh, also been quite lucky eh, with getting people. Uh, people like, for example, Ma- Maria or, or Ryan that you have within the organization. How did you guys go about recruiting and also getting you know some of those key players in place? Yeah, so it's we definitely, as the phrase goes, punch above our weight class in bringing people on. Um, and you know, we we have a very strong um, kind of uh, penchant for or or uh incentive or motivation to hire people who are have two main qualities that I think are really important. One is um the probably the most important, I think globally, just generally, if you're hiring people, think strongly about this. Uh humble learner. So I think there there's people who are um learners and also you have to have humility about it. And what what I mean by that is like you have to be confident in your area of expertise, but also have humility in the areas of expert in the areas that you lack. And want and a desire to learn and improve in those areas. So I, I don't. I mean, I don't want to brag, but I feel like I am. <laughs> ironic. Um, <laughs> I feel like I am a humble learner. Um, I, wanna, I should have a trophy for my humility. Um, but um, because when I started in software, I am. I, I am very confident in my abilities in math and methods. Um, but I am new in software learning and development. For me, I learned a ton from our CTO. Um, um, uh, Rob Platzer, because, you know, I would just like sketch things out and be like, okay, Rob, go build this. This should be like one sprint. And he's like, Zev, no, like, no, that's like, come on, man. Like I learned a ton about software development and, and a lot of the stuff that we need to do on the business side too, for running, running and developing a startup. But I had subject matter domain and expertise in math and methods and law, those things, right. And product, so I think I have a good pro- instinct for product. Maria is a great example. We hired Maria Colacorcio. She had never been a CEO of anything before. Um, she had co-founded a company called Smartsheets and, and did really well there. And I loved working with Maria. We had her on as a consultant to help us with, with communications and marketing when we had like no communications or marketing expertise. And Maria is definitely a humble learner. Maria is... Um, like not an expert at all when we hired her in pay equity and law and data science and analytics, not at all, like zero background in that stuff, but such an eager appetite to improve and such strong humility and drive to, to get better in those areas and master them. And now she's a clear master. Um, and the other thing that I think is important, humble learners, one, the other is like not a jerk plus um, hustle. So like someone who works really hard, but is also not a jerk. And then usually those things kind of go together. Like someone's a jerk, but they work hard. No, we want someone who's a nice person, who's a, who treats other humans with dignity and respect, but also is a heart, like a hustler. Like they, they, they have strong drive to work really hard. And Maria, again, strong example of an insanely hard worker, uh, a hustler who gets stuff done. 
there's so many stories I could tell about Maria working insanely hard and just like that's how she crushes anyone who's even close to her like peers or competition just because she she outworks everybody um and that's important when you're a humble learner and you're learning something that's very hard to learn like statistics or math or law these are all very very hard subjects to learn and people are usually terrified to learn them but a humble learner plus a hard worker who's not a jerk is going to excel in those spaces maria is is a perfect example the other perfect example you said ryan but i think you meant rob rob Porcarelli, Rob and Maria both came from Starbucks. Uh, by the way, great story of just how hard it is to get great people, but also timing and luck. So Rob had been um, in-house counsel with Starbucks for 14 years, 13 or 14 years, at a very high level. He was a lawyer working really hard in labor and employment for Starbucks, giant global brand, right? How the heck did I get Rob, Porcarelli, and Maria to come over to Cindio? It's crazy, but I was working on I, I, I'd known Rob through working with him on the legal side. And Rob's a really smart guy, really talented lawyer. And, you know, it was a little bit of right time, right, right place, right time. Rob was kind of at, he wanted to get out of Starbucks, wanted to do other things. And I was trying to get him to buy the O&A tool for Starbucks. And we had just developed the new pay equity thing. And I said, hey, Rob, I really want to show you this pay equity thing. It's really cool. And he brings Maria to the demo. I've never met Maria before. And I'm demoing the pay equity, the early version of the pay equity tool for Rob and Maria. And I'd never, at that point, I'd not met Maria. And I'm showing them this and I'm saying, hey, this is really cool. It's transformative, et cetera. Unbeknownst to me, Rob and Maria were conspiring to build their own pay equity tool. Uh, and Maria said to Rob, oh, and Rob's like, oh, this guy beat us to the punch. And Maria said, don't worry, Rob. Like, he's a lawyer. Lawyers can't build product. Like, it's going to be fine. We're going to, we're just... We're going to crush him. It's going to be great. So they <laughs> gave the demo and walked away and said, oh, my God, like, this thing is amazing. Like, oh, boy, this is not what we expected. This is like a real thing that's like really good. This is like way better than we expected. And, you know, the old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. And that's really right time, right place. Like, I ended up being able to bring on board two superstar rock stars, Rob and Maria, really at the same time. They, so they sometimes playfully fight about who is technically the first like who was first in, onto the Cindio boat? Uh, I guess I think technically it's Rob, but you know, um, I think in terms of who signed the con, like who was first in, in terms of the employment. But um, Maria and Rob both came on approximately the same time, and Maria came on as CEO. I think Rob came on initially as our head of sales, which is again crazy, right? Like we had a lawyer for 14 years at Starbucks, the head of sales, like really. So we had someone who'd never been a CEO and someone who uh, who had never been head of sales. But again, humble learners, Rob too, humble learner and strong instincts, hustler, great person, nice person, all those things for Rob and Maria for sure. So obviously, you know, to get all these people and all these investments, you know, a, a really big vision, you know, uh, was one that uh, was shared. And I guess to that, no, on that note, if you were to go to sleep tonight, seven, you wake up in a world where the vision of Cindy is fully realized. What does that world look like? I mean, part of it's already there. I, I, I um, track our success. I mean, we, we're successful in terms of our AR, the normal metrics, right? Our, what's our ARR? What's our churn? What's, we have an insane, insane net promoter score. Uh, it's, it's bananas high, like way higher than our, like the average for SaaS and similar size companies because we have amazing people and amazing products. Like that's insane. But the real thing I, so we have all those great metrics and we're growing, we're doing really well. For me, the thing that's really, really important is um, some statistics that our, our CRO and our head of sales and uh, Katie Bardaro, who's worked at Cineo for a long time, sometimes share with us internally and sometimes externally. 
Um, but it's how many human beings we've helped through our software. So to me, you know, you understand that like a lot of what we do helps people and they may never even know that Syndio or our team of people behind Syndio are the people and the products that are helping them. So there are many, 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 mostly women and people of color globally who were not paid fairly, equitably, I call it coffee, consistent, objective, fair, and equitable. They were not paid with coffee before the, their employer deployed Syndio. And then afterwards, they, they've received remediation and remuneration. And now they are paid fairly and equitably with coffee because of our software. And that, that the number of people that are impacted are in the, I think, hundreds of thousands now, uh, annually, to the tune of millions. I think it was like one, like $17 million per year. And to me, those numbers are the things that motivate me. When you talk about realizing a vision, to me, that's those numbers are really the most impactful, right? Because whatever our ARR is, whatever our group, okay, that's lovely and that's nice. But the fact that we, like, you think about what I said earlier about my goal is like identifying problems and solving problems as best we can. We've literally moved the needle. We've helped so many people and so many companies fix a huge problem in our society. And it's really moving away from this, what I talked about earlier of admiring the problem we're not admiring the problem. We're fixing the problem. Like that frustration that I felt for many years of people getting up and talking about pay inequity or, oh, we have X percent of, we don't represent this in our company. Everyone just applauding. Congratulations. You talked about it. That's not solving anything. Like let's, let's build the software. Let's deploy the software. Let's sell it. We're not a charity. We, we, we're a for-profit company. But think about that realization of that vision of, there's a big problem out there, and we've actually helped solve it for many, 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 many people, many organizations. So now we're talking about the future here. I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. Let's say bring you back in time, back in time to that moment where you saw a need, you know, and maybe you, you start to think about maybe launching a company yourself. And let's say you were able to have a chat with your younger self and giving that younger self one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now, Seth? I think the primary piece of advice I would give to younger Zev is to um, trust my instincts more. I think my early, my younger version of myself deferred way too much to the expert, alleged expertise of investors or people who are allegedly experts in, uh, you know, um, venture capital and related investment and and development of, of businesses. Um, and I kept thinking to myself, well, I'm not a business person. I'm a law slash, I'm an expert in this stuff, but I'll defer to you because you're a business, you're more on the business side. Um, and I would overrule my own instincts or own thoughts about personnel, about strategy and things like that, because I deferred to people who had alleged expertise in, in business. Um, if I could go back in time, I would go, trust your instincts. If you think this person is not a good fit, don't, don't do it. If you, if you think this strategic decision is not a good idea, something doesn't sit right with you, go with your own instinct and stick with your kind of instincts on those things. Cause that was something I definitely did very early on. And many times I would, I would overrule my own instinct, my own thought, my own, um, strategic kind of idea or vision, uh, in favor of people who, um, really didn't know my business, my space, this, you know, it's, it's a different animal than just generic how to do business, you know? I love it. Now, for the people that are listening, Seth, that would love to reach out and say hello, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, well, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. I can share all that in the, I don't know if there's some place to write it, but I think I'm just Zev Data Science on Twitter. 
Uh, and of, of course, please check out Cindio. Um, it's SYND.io or Cindio.com. That also works. Um, you know, we have a lot of content, a lot of information on the site. So please check that out. Um, so yeah, that's the best way to get a hold of us. Easy enough. Well, hey, Seth, thank you so much. It has been an honor to have you in the Dealmaker Show with us today. You're very kind to have me. I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.